Hi, and welcome to Bread. This summer, we're beginning a new series that we're calling Jesus with People. And in it, we're drawing our attention to interactions that Jesus had with various groups in the book of Luke. In seeing how Jesus responds to people and how people respond to him, we see ourselves. And this helps us to be more fully aware of his presence, more fully alive, and better equipped to do his kingdom work here in our city. Take a listen. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everyone. Very nice to see you. Thank you, band. That was lovely. Um, Good to see you. My name's Ed, for those of you who don't know me, and along with my wife, Hannah, I lead uh, the church that meets here. Uh, You're very welcome. As we always say, you're here on your own terms. Um, be uh, as engaged or not as you like. Um, we love you and you're always welcome. If you want to get more involved, just to reiterate what um, Nelly was saying, volunteering is a great way of doing that. Uh, and uh, join a course, join super small groups, which will be starting up again in the next few weeks when these courses are finished. Anyway, good to have you with us. We are coming to the end. In fact, this is the final talk uh, on a series um, entitled Jesus with People. So we've looked at Jesus uh, with Uh, women with the sick, Uh, and today we are ending with Jesus with the powerful. Uh, So that should be great. (laughs) Um, I I took a year out between the end of school and uh, my uh, starting college uh, in Cambridge, and part of that year is quite a traditional thing to do in the UK. You go and sort of travel and find yourself. Uh, And I traveled and found myself in Micronesia, Uh, of all places, which is a small group of islands, Guam, which I think America owns, right? Uh, And is a joke in The Simpsons about being sent to Guam. Anyway, Guam is one of the islands in Micronesia, uh, and so too is the island of Yap. Uh, Now, Yap is a very small place. It's beautiful. Uh, And I visited there, and there are very few tourists. It's basically scuba divers and missionaries. That's about it, and me. Uh, and I, it was, it's sort of more or less untouched. Uh, uh, and in fact, um, the traditional dress, which most people on the island wear, is just a blue skirt. Men and women, just a blue skirt, nothing else. In fact, there is an episode of Survivor, my favorite, uh, an early episode where they visit Yap as a sort of reward challenge. And there's a guy on it called Eric who is this sort of the most innocent, naive young guy in the world. He's an ice cream scooper from California. And he goes there on this thing, and there's this traditional dance that the people on the island do uh, with the ladies and the men just wearing skirts. And he says the immortal line of, I have never been around so many boobs. Uh, So that's an idea of what Yap is like. Anyway, that's not the point, but that's what Yap was like. The point is, whilst I was there, I met some missionaries. And uh, these missionaries um, uh, were from America. And they said, could we do a presentation of our faith to you? And I thought, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, um, I'll I'll do that. Uh, Let's listen to their presentation. So I sat down with them, and they had a little kind of flip board uh, with some images on it. And they talked me through their faith. And I listened dutifully. Um, But after a couple of minutes, they brought up a picture that looked not unlike this. Of Jesus. And I said, I don't know much, but I'm pretty sure that's not what he looked like. (laughs) In fact, he looks quite a lot more like you than him. 
Um, anyway, and I was pretty clear that they did exactly the same presentation to all the people on Yap. Um, just so we, we are clear, Jesus probably looked a little bit more like this, uh, given that he was, after all, a first century Jewish Nazarene. That's actually um, an archaeologist's uh, portrayal of, of what they thought he probably would look like, bone structure, time of age, etc., etc. It's funny, isn't it, how we can create Jesus in our own image. We make him what we want him to be, rather than who he actually is. Now, the white, blue-eyed saviour Jesus has obviously been used by misguided Christians throughout history to justify some truly terrible and atrocious things. Hopefully, we are all aware of that, and we don't need to necessarily elaborate on things right now. Because I wonder, though, for our urban, liberal, secular context of 21st century Los Angeles, the problem for some of us is perhaps the pendulum has swung away from something that is clearly wrong to something that is also a little bit distorted. Rather than Jesus being purely the god of the powerful, colonializing white force to take over the whole world, Jesus has become, for some of us, actually the god who stands against all human instances of power or influence or status or position. He has been distorted, in fact, to a figure who is only concerned with the poor. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, Jesus spends the vast majority of his time with the poor, with the outcast and the downtrodden. Why that is, we'll come on to in a minute, but that does not mean that he is therefore anti, per se, the powerful. When a Roman centurion approaches Jesus, and this Roman centurion would represent the occupying, powerful, godless Roman force, keeping the Jewish people captive in their own land, he would be absolutely despised. The one causing the Jewish people so much turmoil and um, heartache, who represents everything powerful and wrong about the world. This centurion who commands a number of men who would have been uh, incredibly influential and powerful, yet he comes to Jesus and Jesus says to his followers in the presence of this man, I am amazed at him. I haven't seen faith like this amongst anyone. And he immediately does what the centurion has been begging him to do, which is to heal his servant. Jairus also comes to Jesus, and Jairus is the synagogue leader. So he represents the powerful religious elite who are actually the people that Jesus reserves his most sort of stinging invective towards, the people who are actually oppressing their own people with their religious power. And yet it's Jairus, the synagogue leader, who comes begging Jesus to heal his dying daughter that Jesus responds to with encouragement and love and faith and says to him, I'll go straight away, and then raises his daughter from the dead. And in fact, uh, of course, many of the people who support Jesus' ministry are incredibly wealthy and influential. It's a similar case for the apostles in the book of Acts. And some of the first uh, converts to Christianity in Acts are incredibly wealthy, influential, high-status type people. And so it shouldn't really come as a surprise to us, therefore, that Paul encourages us in his letter to Timothy to pray for our leaders, because they need it to pray for the most powerful people in the world. 
Because Jesus and the Christianity that he birthed are no more anti-the powerful than they are anti-the downtrodden or the young or the old or the male or the female or the black or the white or the rich or the poor because Jesus loves every single person and wants all people to be saved. So let us resist as much as we can skewing him into our image of what we think he should be like and let him be God. Let him be the Jesus of the Gospels and let him show us what he's actually like rather than what we might want him to be. Jesus is not against the powerful. However, he is against all forms of pride, whatever and however it may manifest itself as. And it's pride, actually, that I want to look at today. And I need to um, reassure us all, of course, that the problem with pride is as soon as we say, um, I'm so humble, we're not. And as soon as we say, oh, I've got a real problem with pride, actually what we're saying is, I'm so humble, aren't I? Uh, so anyway, uh, let's just bear that in mind. I will read this from Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 1. I'm going to split it into three different sections. So we'll do the first six verses now. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, He was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked him, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately put it out? Pull it out. And they had nothing to say. So the first expression of pride that Jesus goes for in this section that we're going to read together is the the pride of the religious. Jesus has visited this prominent religious leader and we're told that he is being carefully watched. Now, the Greek really means sort of ominously watched, surreptitiously watched, watching with the hope, the desire even, that he will screw up. Have you ever surreptitiously or carefully watched someone? This is not religious, but I carefully watched two soccer managers for most of my childhood and early adulthood who were Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho. Now, these people are um, inhabited by Satan, And uh, they are the people who my team were rivals with. Now, all joking aside, they're basically bullies. I have a real problem with bullies, and these people are bullies. But I would become obsessed with them. I I preferred them to fail than my own team to win because I didn't like them so much. But you do this enough, and you realize something's really gone wrong in your heart. Well, anyway, the Pharisees are carefully watching Jesus obsessed with him, not because they want him to succeed, but because they want him to fail. Because just in the previous chapter, Jesus has actually healed a woman on the Sabbath, causing the synagogue leaders to absolutely lose it with him. Uh, They are furious, saying, you cannot do this. And Jesus calls them hypocrites, saying, you are so obsessed with the law that you don't actually even follow, that you have missed what I'm actually doing. You're concerned with dead doctrine as opposed to this actual person, this actual person who has just been healed in your sight. 
And so Jesus here just rubs a bit more salt in the wound, but also gives them an opportunity to change their mind and heals someone again on the Sabbath, right in front of their eyes. But they have nothing to say. They are silent. Because rather than admit pride, it's always easier to double down on it. Hoping, desperately hoping, carefully watching for an opportunity for them to be completely justified. A friend of mine was asked uh, a while ago to preach to some uh, Oxford students uh, at the university because they were about to embark on a week of um, kind of presenting the gospel to their fellow students. And they'd asked uh, my friend to come and speak to them and particularly to speak to them about the Holy Spirit and to help them understand how they could be empowered by the Holy Spirit because basically they were so scared about going to talk to all their friends about Jesus. Uh, They didn't really want to do it. They needed as much help as they could. And my friend went, great, I love this. I'll come and do this. However, he was disinvited to do that by another student, a student who um, felt like to talk about the Holy Spirit would bring disunity to the Christians there. Strange idea there. Uh, But he felt like it would bring disunity. So he disinvited my friend and then met with him and said to him these immortal words, under what authority do you preach the Holy Spirit and empower people in the Holy Spirit? Which is interesting language and language that was used by Jesus' detractors towards Jesus. Anyway, the upshot of it was that um, he was disinvited, he wasn't allowed to speak. All of these people who were hungry for the Spirit, hungry for the things of Jesus, hungry to be filled so that they might bring God's good news to their friends, to the whole university, missed out on that. And they would have been really powerfully impacted because I know my friend and he can do one thing, and that is help people open themselves to the Holy Spirit and be used for the kingdom of God. And then the guy who, did, who disinvited him got sick that instant and was sick for the whole remainder of the week and then was well again because the problem with religiosity is it always, always actually blinds us to the things of Jesus. So everyone lost out. Everyone. Ultimately, actually, all pride leads to a rejection of Jesus. But religious pride is the worst because it tells us we still have him when actually we lost him a while ago. Causing us actually to descend further and further and further into our own religious pride in the desperate belief that we will find him again one time, or at least sometime if we just go further into it. And these Pharisees are no different, despite a constant barrage of divinity, of Jesus preaching the good news, of healing the sick, of showing them who he is, constantly barraging them with the gospel. They are not changed. They just sit in silence. Such is the stubbornness of sin. And this, despite God's grace coming after them and after them, God will never tire. He will continue to come after you and after you and after you. But eyes closed to Jesus will never see Jesus, unfortunately. So, can I ask us all some difficult questions? Do we have the symptoms of religious pride? They are a lack of joy. They are judgmentalism, particularly towards other Christians, 
particularly towards those outside the church. How dare they be like that? And actually, particularly towards ourselves. Symptoms include also the obsession with details. Do you carefully watch others? Do you carefully actually watch yourself? Do you beat yourself up? Are you actually your worst enemy? Well, Jesus is not, and he's come to set you free from all of that. So it's absolutely okay to not have all the answers. You don't, I don't, but Jesus does, and he wants to in his own time and not through your hard work, through your beating yourself up, actually release you into a fullness of a disciplined Jesus-like life by the power of his spirit. Secondly, he exposes social, economic, and societal pride. Let us carry on, verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, Jesus here exposing something deeper, the pride that comes from status, so, social status, economic status, societal position. Jesus noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, and he tells them the parable. Now, pride and status are social issues of any culture, and first century Jewish culture is no exception. Traditionally, in these banquets, there would be a sort of U-shaped um, set of couches. The host would be at the bottom of the U, and he would have his guests of honor on his right and left, and you would get progressively less honorable to be further away. And so what Jesus is saying, don't go and pick that seat right next to, because then someone will come in who is in more, uh, has more of a status than you, and you will have to get up in front of everyone, and you won't even be able to sit in the seat that you should sit in because of your status. You'll have to walk past them all to sit right at the end in the low seats. Rather, stay, start there and see how you might be honored. Max humiliation. The reason behind the misreputation of Jesus as being anti the influential that I mentioned at the beginning is not because these people are ungodly per se. Rather, it's because status necessarily brings with it power. And power often, but not always, but often, begets pride. And pride for Jesus is the problem the powerful are simply more likely to succumb to pride because they have so many people telling them and they do have so much power. It's exactly why 
we are called to pray for our leaders. We should pray for our leaders, particularly the leaders that we really don't like. It will be good for you. It will also be good for them. Now, as good Americans, it may have passed you by that Queen Elizabeth died. Did you notice that? We made quite a big deal of it in the UK. Uh, and I am um, aware that you may not be aware of it, but basically she was our longest reigning monarch. 70 years of reigning. Now, I was talking to someone at a um, kid's soccer game yesterday, and he went up to me, and he had a big smile on his face. He knew I was British, he was American, and he went, so she's dead then. And, and then said, um, I basically think the royal family, it's your version of the Kardashians, isn't it? Which I thought was interesting. Anyway, I know that for some of you, it's sort of quaint. For some of you, it's like severely anti-monarchy, but also a little bit jealous. We're quite like a, quite like a queen as well. Um, so anyway, the point being, um, what's interesting I have found about the queen passing, which is very sad, is that, um, just so you know, I don't, I'm, I don't know where I am with the monarchy. No, I won't say that. Uh, <laughs> I basically believe in um, benevolent dictatorship. That's what I think we should go for. The problem is always the benevolent bit. But if we could find someone who was just benevolent, let's call him Jesus, let's go for benevolent dictatorship. He tells us what to do, we do it, it'll be great. Anyway, there we go. Uh, leaving that aside, what is really interesting to me is in the UK there are actually quite a lot of people who are Republicans, i.e. they do not want a monarchy. But what everyone is united in saying, actually, almost across the board, is she was pretty good. She was pretty good. Uh, I know it's a very low bar, but it's basically <laughs> what I think she's not terrible. And if you look at some of her predecessors and possibly some of the ones to come, that's actually quite good. It's quite good not to be terrible. And I think the reason for it is this, which we've heard over and over again, is um, she cared about people. She actually cared about people. She didn't apologize for her position. She didn't, um, uh, though, lord it over anyone. She actually chose to care for people. What I want to suggest, therefore, is the reason that people in general have responded very well to her is because she refused to live by that equation that status equals power equals pride. And Jesus, and the Queen was definitely a Jesus-believing Christian, Jesus regards such an equation as destructive to our spiritual health and says that instead it is humility that is the gateway to Christian discipleship. And humility, and I think this is what the Queen did a lot, means ignoring rank and class. That friends can actually be made anywhere, with anyone. Including those above us, and including those below us. So let us look at ourselves and not think any of us are immune to the same thing. Just because we may be lower or higher up the pyramid, it's as easy for us to hate up as it is to hate down. And it all comes from the same place. If we're obsessed with the wealthy and the powerful, 
desperate to see them fall, judging them, carefully watching them all the time. We're actually exhibiting just the same thing of the powerful, looking down on the poor, on the downtrodden, and saying, you're a bit disgusting, could you leave me alone? The point of Jesus' parable is not that honor in and of itself is a bad thing. It's really not. The guest who gets moved up the table is the example that we are supposed to follow after all. Rather, Jesus is against the use of prestige and power for self-aggrandizement. What he wants is for us actually to all experience the honor that is due us. This is what he has come after all, is to lift every single person up. But it is the supernatural, eternal honor of being his children of having his delight, of having his endorsement, of coming into the banquet that he has prepared for us and entering into his Father's rest, of being with him, of being the unique, beautiful, special person that he has created you to be. It's an honor that sets us free of hating up or hating down. It's freely given as a gift of grace. And when we receive it, we cannot help but give it to everyone else. And that, isn't it, what is what the world so desperately needs. Finally, verse 15, Jesus exposes pride based purely on personal self-importance. When one of those at the table heard him say this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So, it's got all a little bit awkward. Jesus has been telling these stories, and those around him have becoming a little bit more restless. So one particularly self-important person pipes up. Yes, but we're all going to be able to go to the feast at the end of time, aren't we, in the kingdom of God? Effectively, he's saying, let's stop all of this sort of one-upmanship. Isn't it great that all of us are going to be fine? Because we're fabulous, aren't we? Jesus says, not so fast. And he tells this story where one after another makes excuses not to come to the banquet they've been invited to. Now, let's be clear. This is a prophetic pronouncement. This is about Jesus talking about God's eternal plan for the whole of humanity. Saying there is a banquet. There is an eternal kingdom that everyone is invited to. But you've got to respond. So this is not people having really good boundaries and, you know, good self-care and going, actually, I've just got married, so I couldn't come to you. This is rejecting Jesus. This is saying no to Jesus. This is saying, I don't want it. 
I don't care about it. I think I'm fine by myself. And what those three excuses actually reveal is some motivations and some priorities. That I need to be in charge of what I do, not you. I'm not coming. But nothing is more important than recognizing Jesus for who he is and responding to his invitation. It's actually about admitting weakness. It's actually about admitting need. The reason that the host orders his servant to go out quickly into the streets and the alleys to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame is not because the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame are somehow by dint of being poor and crippled and blind and lame more worthy or more holy or more deserving. Again, every single person in God's kingdom is equal which is not to say deserving at all on our own account or our own efforts, but entirely deserving completely on the grace of God. Rather, it's because the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame are just far, far, far more likely and able and willing to admit their need. There is no other way into the kingdom of God. As Jesus said, it's not the well who need a doctor, it's the sick, and that's who I've come for. So, here is some wonderful news. If actually your issue is a lack of self-belief, why would God ever be interested in me? Could he possibly, possibly have any reason to use me when look at all the beautiful, wonderful people. I always say, I always find it interesting when people go, I'm really going to pray for Justin Bieber to become a Christian. Or I'm really going to go for, um, I don't know, uh, who's, who, uh, Megan the Stallion. Look at me. <laughs> I'm going to go for um, Timothy Chalamet. Let's pray for Timothy to become a Christian. We are aiming way too high. Way, way too high. The only way into the kingdom of God is actually needing the kingdom of God. Is recognizing that we cannot do it on our own. So, if you are thinking, woe is me, then can I just encourage you, well done, on getting far, 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 far further into the kingdom of God than most people, than all the Pharisees, than the people who actually met Jesus, of going, actually, me. The thing Jesus loves more than anything else is people going, surely not me, surely not. You must have made a mistake. These are the people throughout the Bible, from Abraham to Moses to Gideon to the first disciples that Jesus loves to use. The best thing that you can possibly say is, not me, but I'm here anyway. Because that's what he wants. Because God is in no doubt that what he wants to display is his glory through you. So that people will go, wow, look at that person. That can't be them. That's got to be something more. 
he places his treasure in earthen vessels like yourself. So, take your doubts and your worries, your feelings that actually God could never use you, and pass them over to him, and let him, let you, let's see what he will do with it. Because he will do extraordinary things. Our vision for this church has always been that everyone, every single person gets to play. I don't know about you, but I would be quite bored of just going and listening to me over and over again. It just gets boring after a while. Or going somewhere where the worship is just, oh, I listened to wonderful worship and I didn't really partake and I didn't do anything and I didn't change and I didn't get used. Church is for everyone. It's for you and me. Because God has chosen all of us to be what is described in the New Testament as a priesthood of all believers. You have unique gifts. You are made in the image of God. You are like his icon. You represent him. And what you can do in his power is extraordinary, beyond your wildest dreams. As Jesus says, you, you, actually you, will do greater things than even I have done. Do you believe it? I know you don't, but you should because it's true. On the other hand, if you know, and this is very difficult to admit, yourself to be a person of pride, and it is difficult to admit, but it's a good thing to admit, can you take Jesus' commands seriously? To get over yourself. The thing with pride, it's nearly always a symptom of actually a lack of self-belief rather than, an, like, rather than arrogance. It's a defense mechanism because we don't actually believe in ourselves at all. So we look down on other people. It's why the religious are so often actually secretly their own worst critics, beating themselves up in the silence. And it's why bullies are so often the ones who were bullied in the first place. We do not need to puff ourselves up with our own self-confidence. What we need is to, for Jesus to fill us with his confidence. The confidence that he calls you to, to become the one he loves, to become the one who can be used for his glory. So let me just end by talking a little bit about humility. Now, Britons have cornered the market in false humility. We are brilliant at false humility. What we say is, oh, no, I couldn't possibly. Whilst all the time thinking, I really could, but I'm not going to tell you because I'm polite and British. Christian humility. Think of Jesus, the archetype of humility. Did he at any point deny exactly who he was? No. Did he at any point not use all his gifts and calling for God's glory? Did he say some extraordinarily seemingly arrogant things if they weren't backed up with the truth? Yes. Did he do some extraordinarily arrogantly powerful things if they weren't backed up by the truth? Yes, because he knew who he was, and yet he is the archetype of humility. So do not hide your gifts under a bushel. What God has placed in you, he wants to use. And they will be a multifaceted, don't worry about other people. Comparison will kill you. Do not compare yourself. You're better than that. Don't compare yourself to anyone. Compare yourself to yourself, the one that Jesus wants to make you. 
and see how you're doing. Because the more that you let him fill you with his power, the more all your gifts will come to the fore and you will actually use them, not for terrible ends, but for glorious ends as he directs you. One of the great traditions of the church that we came from was that everyone did actually believe this, you know, the actual gospel. And it meant that everyone knew how to pray for people, everyone knew what their gifts were, and everyone used them. Even the janitor. The janitor was a very odd man, who I love. But he was quite an odd guy, and yet he had drunk the Kool-Aid. He had been there receiving from God, allowing God to fill him with his power. And just before we went, he came to me and, Ed, and said, Ed, I've, I've been praying for you, and I have a... Um, uh, I felt like God showed me what uh, he wanted to say to, to you, so I'm going to share it with you now. And he said, I've been reading this passage, this passage from Acts 17. It's a passage that three other people independently had had for me about planting this church. And he said exactly the same thing. And I, said, I just burst into tears because it was God speaking through him. And he was totally unfazed by it, just going, well, of course he would, because I am a child of God, and so are you. So don't hide your gifts. Give them back to him and see what he will do with them. Good? Good. Hmm. Just wondering what to do. Talk amongst yourselves. Humility is not self-denial. There is a tradition that, oh, I'm a Christian, therefore I've got to let everyone walk over me and treat me like a piece of crap. That is not humility. Carry on talking amongst yourselves. This is what I think God is saying. There are people here whose, um, whose intellect is incredibly high. Incredibly high. And what I feel like Jesus is saying is, I'm sorry that you have felt like people haven't recognized you in the church, or your gift has not been recognized. Because I gave you that intellect, and I love it, and I am the cleverest person alive. And I love that you're very clever too. And I want you to be a force for real change in my kingdom. The way you think. You know, just in general, for all of us of lower intellect, we can just admit it. Uh, wouldn't the church do with some real interesting, dynamic new thinking? Being able to um, express the things of Jesus. Couldn't the church do with, you know, a high intellectual bar? Wouldn't that be good? So that's what I felt like God was saying. That he made you like he made you because he wants to use you. 
and often the church has neglected the brain. Good. Should we stand? At the end of our services, we always just um, pray for people. particularly in relation to, um, to research into brain chemistry. That's what I feel like God's saying. There's someone here who actually um, is excited about how the brain works, and uh, this, is, this is your field of speciality. And uh, God is excited about that too. And uh, I just want to say to you that God, God really endorses that in you, that he wants to... Um, fill you again with his spirit so that you uh, you can see what, what where he's leading in this. This would be extraordinary um, to help us understand better how to, and it's really with the view to healing people, um, brains not working properly. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and pray with you. But let's stand and let's open our hands just as a sign of being open. You might want to close your eyes. Just in your own heart and mind, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to meet you? How much more will my Father give the Holy Spirit to everyone he asks, says Jesus? So just ask and receive the Holy Spirit and let me add my prayers to your prayers. Come, Spirit of the living God, would you fall afresh on your people now? I bless what you're doing. I bless what you're doing. I know that there are a number of uh, people who are trained as therapists in this church. Uh, God is just um, saying to you, and again, he is just um, equipping you. Come, Holy Spirit, would you fall on those people who care so deeply for people, who are gifted to help people move on, to help people heal. Would you fall on them and bring everything that they have to life for your kingdom and your glory? I bless what you're doing. I bless what you're doing. Thank you, Jesus. So we're going to pray for anyone who wants to. You don't have to say anything. Just come to the front. It would be good to be filled with all that Jesus wants to do for you. The band are going to come and play. But may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and give you his peace this day and forevermore. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Come and find a little spot on the floor. We'd love to pray for you. It's good just to receive as much from Jesus as you possibly can get. Um, otherwise, see you next week. We're starting a new series. Very exciting uh, on the book of Colossians. It's going to be wild.